Before we get going with this week's show, a word from our friends at Santa Anita Park. A couple of wagers that you need to take advantage of, the Golden Hour wagers. Let's start with the pick four, $1 base bet. The last two races of the day at Santa Anita, coupled with the last two at Golden Gate. In very similar fashion, you've got the $5 Golden Hour double. Again, $5 base bet. You have the last race at Santa Anita along with the last race at Golden Gate Fields. Both offer a player-friendly low 15% takeout. They're available to play across all major ADWs like First Bet and Express Bet. And Golden Hour wagers will be offered each race day when both Santa Anita Park and Golden Gate Fields are racing. The Golden Hour wagers, the $1 pick four and the $5 Golden Hour double, a couple that you definitely, definitely need to get involved with. Now, on to episode 100 of the show. What's happening? Welcome to the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter at Bernier underscore Matt. Today is Monday, January the 24th, 2022. This is episode 100 of the pod. However you listen, thank you for doing so. Many ways to find the show, whether you just listen to the audio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, InTheMoneyPodcast.com. Uh, if you watch along over on YouTube, search bar Matt Burney or show, you get this episode along with the 99 prior. On this week's show, we're going to go back and take a look at three important races from the fairgrounds this past weekend. One of them being a Kentucky Oaks prep, one of them being a Kentucky Derby prep, and one of them seemingly being a de facto prep for the Saudi Cup. At the end of February, we'll then roll into a conversation with our guest. 100th episode, felt like it was time to spice things up a little bit. Bring on Nick Luck, who we'll be seeing later on this week down at Gulfstream Park. Part of the NBC coverage of the Pegasus World Cup, the showdown between Nick's go and life is good. Post-draw will happen on Tuesday. That's going to be the most critical part of that race, honestly. I have a very difficult time envisioning someone else winning outside of those two. But depending on where one of them or both of them draw, we know that that short run into the turn at a mile and an eighth down a Gulfstream, no bargain for any horse, no matter the talent level. That's the only real question mark I have about things going into the weekend anyway. Uh, We'll see in time when we get the past performances that come out and everything else. But preliminarily, is that a word? Uh, Before everything has happened? Boy, it looks like a match race on paper, and I'm very much looking forward to getting down there. I head down on Thursday afternoon, uh, again, 4.30 to 6, NBC, this coming Saturday, the Pegasus World Cup, both the dirt and the turf. And then we'll wrap things up with a preview, projections for NFL Conference Championship Sunday. You've got the game between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Kansas City Chiefs, and then the San Francisco 49ers and the Los Angeles Rams. The winners of those two games will go on to the Super Bowl in about two weeks' time. So that's going to be this week's show. The difference for the preps that we're going to talk about from the fairgrounds, the racing from the fairgrounds, I'm not going to show the replays. You can find them wherever you stream your replays or your ADWs, or you can find them over on the Fairgrounds YouTube channel. Uh, For time purposes, I'm not going to go through all of those. And to be honest with you, I didn't think there was a lot to talk about as far as trips were concerned. Maybe the dynamics of the race, there's a lot to talk about. But visually, I didn't think any of the major players had any real issues as far as maybe they had traffic or they were caught wide or whatever it may be. 
maybe one of the three-year-olds in the boys' race we can talk about, but I, I don't really don't think it made much of a difference. But let's take them right in order. Race number 11 on Saturday was the Silver Bullet Day, a mile and 70 yards for the three-year-old Phillies. Lacrette gets the job done in her second lifetime start for Steve Asmussen. Stone Street, she's got a beautiful pedigree. She's by Medaglia Doro out of a Bernardini mare you may be familiar with. You may remember Cavorting. She was a multiple grade one winner. Second lifetime start. Both starts have come at two turns. And she's a perfect two for two thus far. The fig didn't come back fast for the race. And visually, I was kind of unimpressed. She earned a 74 buyer. She won not in gate-to-wire fashion because in deep stretch, Fanny and Freddie actually put about a half length on her. And I think it was a combination of the two. Maybe Fanny and Freddie getting a little bit, I don't want to say goofy, but idling a little bit on the front end. And Lacrette, to her credit, she battled back. The final time is not going to wow you. Visually, you're not going to be wowed, I don't think. At least I wasn't. I thought it was a a fine effort, a good stepping stone. She's going to need to improve, and I'm not saying that she won't. Uh, But boy, does she have just a a massive, massive amount of ground to make up between her and the leading lights in that division, most notably Echo Zulu. Uh, A 74 buyer right now is just not nearly fast enough for me to really even be all that positive. I don't have anything super negative to say, but I'm not going to, you know, just glow about this filly. I know many people are very high on her. I have no issue with her other than she's just not fast. Not right now, anyway. Now, first start off with a little bit of a layoff. First start as a three-year-old. First start at a new racetrack against Stakes Company. I mean, she did a number of things good for the first time. She needs to improve, stating the obvious. She still can improve. But boy, she needs to improve quite a bit and have her main competition, her stablemate, not improve whatsoever. I just think that's a lot to ask. From a prep rating standpoint, I think I'm being fair when I give this a 5 on a scale of 1 to 10. And the only reason it's a 5 is because I think she can improve. I think she will improve. But I, I right now, I have a hard time really getting sunk into the idea that She's a legitimate threat to a horse like Echo Zulu for a race like the Kentucky Oaks. I just, I think there's a a chasm between her and the big girl at this point anyway. The rest of the field, it is a little interesting that they all regressed uh, with the exception. Oh, I shouldn't say that. They didn't all regress. I lied. Half the field regressed, but we're not talking about regressing from massive figs. These were fillies that were running in the mid-70 range. And everyone who had earned a 70 or greater in their last start coming into this race all regressed. It's just a matter of how badly did they regress. Uh, Fanny and Freddie dropped back five points. Uh, Berna Breezy dropped back seven points. And Swedish Pie dropped back 14 points. It's not a race that I'm enamored with. I'll be surprised if we have true sort of difference makers coming out of this race. For the three-year-old Phillies going forward, it's early, but some of these girls have, have run many, many times, and we haven't seen a, a great deal of improvement. Lacrette's really the only one I'm that intrigued with. Uh, she will need to jump up in a big way in her next start, wherever that may be. Now, let's move on to the Louisiana. This is a race for older horses, a mile and a 16th, and it is the return of Mandaloon. We hadn't seen him since the Haskell, a race that he won via disqualification because Hot Rod Charlie interfered with Midnight Bourbon who Mandaloon ended up running into here again. These two have knocked heads a couple of times, more than a couple of times, actually, I should say, throughout their career. The the key going into this race was, from a tactical standpoint, 
there was no other speed other than Midnight Bourbon. And Mandaloon, uh, you know, I mentioned it with PTF last week at the end of the week on, on the uh, Players Pod, which I'll be on again this week uh, and every week going forward. Mandaloon has his quirks, or he has shown them anyway throughout his career, and mentally, was he going to put it all together? Was he going to take the step forward that he needed to, to be, a, I think, a big-time threat as an older horse? I think he did, but there, it's a really difficult call for me. Mandaloon defeats Midnight Bourbon. They're nearly nine lengths clear of the rest of the field. Warrant, who finished third. The Figs come back fast. Mandaloon earns a career best 106, Midnight Bourbon a 105, and a 105 is not even his best race to date. It's also worth noting Midnight Bourbon had blinkers on for the first time, and each of these horses had Lasix for the first time. So there's a lot going on, and there are things that they may or may not have going forward. Let's talk about from a Saudi Cup standpoint, neither of them will have Lasix. Now, they've run well without Lasix in the past, so I'm not that concerned about it. Midnight Bourbon, if they do choose to go, to Riyadh, it'll be a second time with blinkers on, and he can improve. But I'd be lying if I said I had any faith in this horse at this point, getting the job done against quality company. When I say quality company, I mean grade one caliber runners. Mandaloon's a grade one caliber runner. I know this is a grade three, but it was a prep, and they were they're two grade one to two slash-ish kind of type horses, if you get what I'm saying. Mandaloon's upside, I think, is much greater than Midnight Bourbon's. Midnight Bourbon, this has become a habit now that he's had ideal setups and he just can't quite get the job done. Now, he's been beaten by some good horses. Mandaloon, essential quality, uh, go through the you know the Preakness, Rombauer, who unfortunately has been retired. But, you know, he's had many golden opportunities. The Clark, where he lost to Maxfield, and he just can't finish for whatever reason. Is it the distance? Does he lose focus? I don't know. He's a good horse, but it's hard for me to draw any other conclusions at this point, and he's just a notch below the best of the best. Now, as far as Mandaloon is concerned, yes, this was an improvement, I think, mentally, from a tactical standpoint. I don't want to say he had no business winning the race, but, you know, he spotted his main competitor a couple lengths in a rather tepid pace, and was still able to win. All positives. The not concern, but the unknown now going forward for Mandaloon, and again, this is a horse that I've loved. Bet him last year in the future pool, loved him in the derby, loved him since really this time last year. It's one thing to do it against Midnight Bourbon, who again has shown a penchant for not punching on and finishing the deal. Assuming the plan goes on and he goes over to run in the Saudi Cup. Well, that's all well and good that you can do it against Midnight Bourbon. Can you do it against Mishrif? Who we'll hear Nick Luck talk about here in a little bit. You know, Can you do it against some of the other good Europeans who may or may not take to the dirt? We'll find out. And who knows? Maybe a one-turn mile and an eighth? I think he is more of a one-turn horse. I'm... I'm Torn as far as how far I think he wants to go, and maybe a one-turn mile and an eighth is actually even more of a stamina test. Maybe a one-turn mile like the Met is really what he wants. not saying he can't run well at a mile and an eighth or a mile and a quarter, but part of me thinks his best may be slightly shorter. 
I'm going to be curious to see how, how we go on from here and what this horse turns into. A 106 in his first start off of a lengthy layoff is definitely a positive. Does it make him, you know, the horse to beat in any of these races? That's debatable. I like him, but I, I don't know that I think he's an absolute slam dunk in some of these spots. Like I'm sure he will be from a betting standpoint. The public, I'm sure, will gravitate toward him. I just, I don't know. I want to see another race from him before I'm all in saying, you know, he's the guy. But from an upside standpoint, purely talking about these two, to me, there's really no question. Mandaloon's ceiling is considerably higher than Midnight Bourbon's. And Midnight Bourbon, maybe second time with the Blinks is going to be the, the thing that makes the difference. But he has had cushy setup after cushy setup after cushy setup. And he continues to prove or make the case anyway that he is not quite of the upper echelon. And now the final race we'll talk about before we get into our conversation with Nick. The grade three LeCompte. This is a prep race for the Kentucky Derby. 10 points go to the winner. I made it clear on the Players Pod last week and in my article over on NBCSportsEdge.com that if the Kentucky Derby were run last Saturday, the day that they ran the LeCompte, I probably would have picked Epicenter to win. Professionalism is there. He's got the connections. He's got some speed. He's got figs. Really not anything to knock. He loses on Saturday. Loses a dirty photo to Call Me Midnight. A 28 to 1 shot. When you just hear that part, it makes you, I'm sure, just in general, wonder, well, how good can he be if he's losing to a 28 to 1 shot? When you look at that race, and if you haven't seen the replay, I encourage you to do so. And if you haven't looked at a chart, I would encourage you to do so. And not only did Epicenter run the best race, in my opinion, but if anything, he just made me believe even more that he's a legitimate talent that I think has a big chance the first Saturday in May if he gets there. When I say if he gets there, a combination of points, physically, the whole nine. You need a lot to go right with these three-year-olds this time of year to get to the starting gate at Churchill Downs for the Kentucky Derby. Never mind win the thing. But purely from the way the race was run, I thought this was a really, really impressive performance from Epicenter. Keep in mind, he's still lightly raced. And he's the only part of the pace in this race that was anywhere at the end. And not only was he anywhere, he nearly won the damn thing. He loses by a head to Call Me Midnight. I'm just going to run through the top five finishers and where they were three quarters of a mile into the race. So going into the far turn effectively. Call Me Midnight was seventh. Papa Cap, who finished third, was fifth. Trafalgar, who finished fourth, was sixth. Presidential was dead last in a field of nine. If you're looking at it from how far behind the pace setter they were, I mean, Papa Cap was 1.2... 1.7, so about two lengths off of it, roughly, length and three quarters. Uh, Trafalgar was about three and three quarters. Uh, Call Me Midnight was about four and three quarters. And Presidential was even farther back than that, probably seven-ish. The pace setter was Epicenter. The other horses that were in and amongst Epicenter, and say what you will about them from a gambling standpoint, I understand they were longer shots. But the fact of the matter is, Blue Kentucky, Surfer Dude, we'll use those two, but I mean, even if you wanted to include Trafalgar, they were nowhere. 
Trafalgar finishes, I think all things considered for how lightly raced he is, a decent fourth, and he finishes, call it, uh, you know, roughly three and a half lengths. No, I mean, even more than that, actually. Seven lengths behind Epicenter. Epicenter, to me, clearly ran the best race. Call Me Midnight clearly had the run of the race. He ran well, Call Me Midnight. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to sit here and just dump on him. But that is the ideal setup. Hot, hot pace. Any of the other horses remotely close to it, pack it in. And you were able to run down a tiring pace setter. Now, he's going to be another big price in his next race, wherever that may be. The Risen Star, somewhere else. It was just an ideal scenario for this horse. And perhaps he wants to run mile and a quarter or, or longer, and it's gonna, not going to be an issue for him. I just, it's hard for me to take a horse off a perfect trip coming out of this. Conversely, Epicenter, I'll take him every day of the week. Whether it is the Risen Star, whether it's a race at Oaklawn, wherever it is. I think if anything, he just furthered his case to me, or the argument anyway, that he is among the best of the best as far as the three-year-olds are concerned. Now, if you want to say the fig didn't come back all that fast, only an 88, not going to argue with you. But from a dynamic standpoint, the 88 earned by Epicenter, I think, is considerably better than the fig would suggest. Um, This is one that I'll be curious whenever Timeform US, Craig Milkowski and folks publish their official numbers. It'll be out on their pace cast later on this week. Him and David Aragona, be sure to listen to that and subscribe and all that jazz. Um, Craig on Sunday suggested it could be roughly a 109, which would be in line with the 88, you know, give or take 20 points. Um, The big piece to that, though, is that's just the number, not factoring in pace. Epicenter ran the best race. It's a question now of, do you think it was good enough for him to improve? Do you have issues or concerns about how far he wants to go? He tired at a mile and a 16th. Got to go a lot longer than that for Saturday in May, if that's what you're thinking. I am not deterred. I think he belongs up there. I think he's good. Papa Cap. First start off of a little bit of a layoff. We haven't seen him since the Breeders' Cup. I thought it was a good effort. A little disappointing. Thought he pulled a pretty good trip in the grand scheme of things. Saved ground every inch of, of the way. Was loaded rounding the far turn when Joe Bravo starts pushing on him a little bit. The hole opens up on the rail, and he just seemed to lack that punch at the end. And maybe that's a sign of a short horse. Again, bigger, bigger, bigger prizes down the road for the connections than the LeCompte. Having said that, I still wanted to see a little bit more. I wanted to see a better finish. I, honestly, if he had outfinished Epicenter, I would have been pleased. For him not to be able to get by Epicenter, even if he was a slightly short horse, it makes me think that Epicenter may just be a better horse. And that's just my opinion. Doesn't make it right or wrong, but that's where we're at. Papa Cap probably will improve in his next start. He almost equaled his career best fig. He earned an 87. He earned an 88 in the Breeders' Cup. No reason to think he won't move forward out of this race. Um... I just wanted to see a slight, slight bit more out of him. We didn't get it. Maybe we will next time. I assume it'll be the Risen Star. As far as the rest of the field is concerned, Trafalgar, it doesn't sound like they're going to go to the Risen Star with him. He, 
It was honestly, it was my concern, and I mentioned it with PTF on the Players Pod. What happens when he sees a legitimate pace? What kind of trip is he going to pull? Yes, he was wide, but his win two starts back came with him pressing a snail's pace. This could not have been farther from a snail's pace. This was an electric pace. And just to really emphasize how fast they went early on, and I know I keep talking about Epicenter, and some of you, if you don't like him, I apologize. But to just hammer home, the race is at a mile and a 16th on the main track carded on Saturday at the fairgrounds. There was a maiden special weight, race number two. They went 48-1 and one to the half. Race number three, optional claimers, three-year-olds, a mile and a 16th. They went 48 and nearly three to the half. Maiden special weight, race number five, three-year-olds. They went 48 flat to the half. Race seven is six furlongs. Race nine is six furlongs. The Phillies race is a mile 70. The Louisiana, mile and a 16th to the half. They went 48 and one. The LeCompte, they went 47 flat. I mean, they went considerably faster than any other race of the day at this mile and a 16th distance. DRF has used the same variant across the board. There's no reason to think the track sped up for any reason prior to this race. They just went that much faster. Epicenter went six lengths faster to the pace call than Gunrunner, excuse me, than Gunrunner, the Midnight Bourbon did in the race prior. So it was a wicked pace given the way the track was and the way every other race played out at the distance. And it just continues to add into why I like Epicenter coming out of this race as much as I do and why I'm a little cooler on Call Me Midnight because I think while he did run and congrats to the connections, I think he had the run of the race and he took advantage of it and good on him. He's a graded stakes winner now. You're going to need another setup like that to really be able to take advantage and maybe he'll get it. But just head to head or of the top three, give me Epicenter every day of the week. Let me know what your thoughts are about this race, which from a prep rating standpoint, I give it an eight. I I believe in Epicenter. I think he's the goods. I think he's going to be a horse that's going to make his presence felt in these prep races leading into the Derby, assuming he stays healthy, and then in the Triple Crown races. I really do. I believe in him. Let me know what your thoughts are about this race, about the Silver Bullet Day, about the Louisiana as a prep to the Saudi Cup, any of these races or any other action from this past week and beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter, at Bernie or underscore Matt. Although I will say, I have uh, muted many notifications on Twitter. So if you do reply to me and I don't say something, it, it's, it may not be because I'm ignoring you. It's just I may not see it because I've got all the... I, I'm just not dealing with it anymore. There's too much negativity. And that's that. But... I will still be putting out all my content over there on Twitter, so feel free to follow along at Bernie or underscore Matt, or you can give me an email, bernier.matt89 at gmail.com, about any of these and anything going forward. Uh, next week, we'll talk about the Pegasus races. We'll also talk about the Southwest happening down at Oaklawn. Looks like a big full field. Looking forward to seeing what happens down there. But first things first, the Pegasus races, both of them, coming up this Saturday, NBC 4.30 to 6. I'll be down there along with this gentleman, my good friend Nick Luck. Let's talk a little bit about uh, a number of different things with Nick, and we'll wrap the show up with some NFL projections for Conference Championship Saturday. Sunday, I should say. 
All right, joined by not just one of the best broadcasters in racing, I genuinely mean this, one of the best broadcasters in the world, my friend Nick Luck, NBC Sports, Nick Luck Daily. You've seen him with all of his coverage over in the UK. Uh, Nick, this is episode 100 of this pod for In The Money Media, so I felt like I needed a special guest, and this is your first time on here, so thank you for uh, giving me a few minutes. I feel very honored to be part of your centenary episode, Matt, and after <laughs> that introduction, the only way is down. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, let, let's let's be kind. I think I think we both get on pretty well here. Uh, and I, I think it's it's Pegasus week. I know you're headed to Florida here in a few days. I am as well. Talking about the Pegasus in general for us in the United States, it's the first big event of the year. Uh, I'm curious, what's the what's the temperature of the water in the UK and in Europe in general for the Pegasus? Do people really acknowledge it? Is it just sort of, you know, another race in the States? What's the, the overall vibe? I think the latter, sadly, at the moment, more than the former. I think started with a bit of fanfare, world's richest horse race. First edition was Arrogate, then Gunrunner, got a bit of a, a traction in Europe. And then the turf race came along, so Aidan O'Brien would send the odd runner. And again, so become a bit more appointment to view. I think might have been a bit of a victim of COVID insofar as, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Last year's race didn't get much international publicity and you know, people might have just forgotten slightly. Also, of course, here in Britain, we're smack in the middle of a, of a jump season, which becomes ever more popular at the expense of its uh, sort of more industry-led counterpart. So you know, I think there are various reasons why perhaps the Pegasus isn't quite cemented in the consciousness of, of British and or European race funds. That's not to say there aren't people who, who take a keen and constant interest in American racing, because there are, and they will be tuned in on, on Saturday, and, and the, the matchup between Life is Good and Nick's Go should be enough to attract anyone who consider them, considers themselves to be a global racing fan. So it will have a, um, a devoted constituency, but it will be quite a tight one. I won't hold your feet to the fire. You brought up Life is Good and Nick's Go, the two main players in Saturday's race. Do you have an opinion either way? Do you like one more so than the other? Or do you think there's a, a wild scenario in which things fall apart and maybe somebody comes along and picks up the pieces. It's a weird one, because when I was filling out my uh, Eclipse Award ballot, uh, I thought, well, if I'm just going to vote for the most talented horse in three-year-old cult, this should, this should just be straight up and down, life is good. I should just vote for him and be done with it. And then the whole argument as to whether you should or shouldn't vote for Medina Spirit becomes redundant because you chuck out all that all that classic form, however good it was. And that was sort of one part of the way I was thinking. But then I thought it, it was not due reward for the horses who'd been campaigning and knocking heads on a brutal triple crown trail uh, and whatever else that followed. So I didn't in the end vote for life is good, but you could see the way my instincts were. My instincts were that, you know, he was comfortably the best or the most talented, innately talented three-year-old cult of 2021. And, and I sort of believe that his his potential will will sway me that way over the the undoubted ability of Nick's good. I think I think life is good is just a better, faster horse in his marrow than Nick's go is. I tend to agree with that. And I think there are many people that agree with that, which makes I'm going to be very interested to see how the wagering goes. Is there a scenario in which life is good is actually not a prohibitive favorite, but let's say he's four to five and Nick's go is seven to five or something like that. We saw it in the Breeders' Cup Classic where Nick's go on paper was clearly the fastest horse, but myself and many others had drawn up the scenario that they were just going to go, somebody was going to go at him and he would be the one that would pay the price. He ended up going off at a very playable price and made that field look very average. So 
I'll be very curious to see how the public ends up going from a gambling standpoint in Saturday's race. We've had Aiden O'Brien in the past send runners for the Pegasus. We've had Aiden O'Brien in the past send runners for the Kentucky Derby. It's that time of year here. Our three-year-old prep season is in full throttle. Um, I'm curious, do you see anything, I don't want to say imminent from the O'Brien barn, because to your point, it's not flat season right now, but you know, I, I feel like every year or two, we're good for a, for a cool more entrant coming overseas. And if it's not O'Brien, I guess the second part of the question is, when do we start to see Charlie Appleby ramp up the possibility of a three-year-old campaign for some of his Colts, simply because it seems like anytime he sends something to the States, they win. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's standby, isn't it, with Charlie Appleby? You're certainly going to get at least as much as you did last year. There's no diminution in his resources. Indeed, he's got arguably the three most exciting older cults in Europe in Hurricane Lane, uh, Adair and Yibir. Not necessarily in that order either. And he's got arguably the three most exciting sophomores as well in Caribus, the horse that I love. I mean, if you're asking to ask me, which horse I'm looking forward to seeing most in Europe this season, it is definitely Caribus. Um, because even in his one defeat, I, I saw something that I hadn't seen in most any other uh, two-year-old last year. The beast that was native trail, the unbeaten champion juvenile of last year, and uh, the horse who won the Breeders' Cup <laughs> juvenile turf, unless you happen to be uh, happen to be playing the race, modern <laughs> games. Who, who, you know, for all that, we got so carried away in the, in, in the farce of what happened beforehand with the wagering and the scratch that wasn't a scratch, we sort of didn't really notice that it was quite a good performance. And he could he could be a big player. And you see, if you've got, normally a horse like Modern Games, you'd go, right, we'll just run him in the 2,000 guineas because he's good enough. He's easily good enough. But given the fact he's got two better than him, if they all stay sound, Modern Games could conceivably come back to the States and mop up all sorts of, of races. And then you've got all those older cults again, there simply aren't enough targets in Europe unless you want to run them all against each other. So I, I believe that his hand in, in North America will be even stronger this year than it was last year. And I think one of the keys to Appleby's success was his opportunism and spying those big pots that other people hadn't. I think Yabir in, uh, in the race, uh, was it Belmont Park or Saratoga where he won? I my brain Belmont. is gone. Belmont, yeah that sort of invitational race that didn't have graded status or was, but was worth a million dollars. I think those sort of races, the three grade ones in Canada, you know, all, all that we saw from him last year, we expect to see it again. I mean, Aiden would love to do the same, but at the moment his priority has got to be converting the three or four really talented juveniles he had at the back end of last year into European classic horses. Uh, certainly Point Lonsdale looks at a derby horse through and through, uh, even though he, he found Native Trail a bit too quick for him in Ireland. Uh, Luxembourg looks a, a very promising horse, unbeaten in two, and a, and a Group 1 winner of the uh, of the Verton Futurity. And the, the filly who came back off a six-month absence to win the, the Cheveley Park. Uh, I thought she looked very, very good tenebrism. You know, add one or two others like Glownthorne in there who'd be quite promising. I think he needs to convert those two-year-olds into classic winning three-year-olds now, and that will be his main priority. I think then deeper into the season, you'll see him start trying to target a few of the a few of the international races. But his problem is that his cupboard this year, as far as those kind of good, hard-knocking older horses are concerned, is a bit bare, sadly. He's lost his two talented fillies. You know, to lose Snowfall and Santa Barbara, you know, both no longer with us, that's just a huge blow. You know, they both had so much to offer as racehorses, never mind broodmares, and they would have been big players in in America, I would have thought. In, in coming months 
so they've they've sadly died then St Mark's Basilica is off to stud the best horse they had from last year uh, so there just isn't that kind of really strong group of older horses this time round I think you're going to be looking again at horses like Broom who ran so well in the Breeders Cup turf and possibly Bolshoi Ballet I think those are the sort of horses that you might be seeing quite a bit of in the in the States. And then we'll find out as time goes on, some of those sort of mezzanine level three-year-olds I'm sure will end up as well. But um, as I say, there's a little bit of rebuilding to do with, with some, some untimely losses and, and the good ones off to stud. Yeah. But perhaps the bench is a little bit on the, uh, the bear side for, for O'Brien at the moment, but I, I'm curious the, the feeling in Europe has, I don't want to say his demise, but his, his sort of, uh, let's say he's, he's playing second fiddle to Appleby right now. Has it been so much of a, a course correction in that now all of a sudden, I know here in the States, people look at it and say, when O'Brien sends a horse over, they don't expect them to win now. They look at it as a proper betting opportunity against where, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you were terrified of the prospect. Now you're kind of anxiously looking forward to it because you think there's a chance that you're going to get paid on another prospect who actually has a better opportunity to win. Has the has his sort of um, again not demise, but the the recent lack of great success has that been a little bit over exaggerated? Um, I mean, I think the success has still been there. I mean, wh- when they come to write the history books, they'll still say he trained. I think it was six individual European Classic winners last year, which is a ridiculous yeah. tally. <laughs> Quite weird. You know? Yeah, and, and and he added French classics to English and Irish ones, which is something he doesn't always do. So St. Mark's Basilica won two in France. He won two Phillies classics with Phillies who weren't really of classic caliber. Then Snowfall kind of exploded off a two-year-old form into this super Philly for about three months before slightly regressing again. So I just think as time's gone on, his methodology has become a little more individual and a little more unconventional. And, you know, he has the security of being able to be a bit more experimental in the way that he puts horses into races and, and the way that he trains. Yeah, there's, I, I, yeah, they, 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 they can test the horses more because, you know, they, they, they've got more security with their, with their stud operation than they had 25 years ago. So much security. Most of that has been afforded them by, by the success of first Saddler's Wells and then Galileo. So, yeah, I think I think Aidan O'Brien is probably less worried about um, percentages, strike rate statistics, because you know he can be a little bit more unorthodox about the way he campaigns horses, and that's probably why the percentages in in America aren't that aren't that high, because it doesn't it doesn't always follow conventional wisdom what he's what he's doing with some of those horses. Whereas Charlie Appleby, I think he's he's targeting those races from a long way out. If, if you know what I mean. Makes sense. And look, the horses run like he's targeted those races from a long way out. Before I let you go, a quick thought on the Saudi Cup, which comes up about a month from now uh, over in Riyadh. From a domestic standpoint here in the States, it seems like Mandaloon is going to be the flag bearer. He looked really strong winning to Louisiana the other day in a race that from a dynamic standpoint, Midnight Bourbon again really had no excuse to lose, yet he did. The speed figure came back fast, a 106 buyer for Mandaloon. Mishrif, it sounds like, is supposed to be the, you know, the horse to beat, considering he won the race last year. Um, from your perspective, any news on Mishrif or, the, or any other Europeans, maybe, that we should be kind of keeping an eye on as we get closer and closer to the one-turn mile and an eighth? Well, the, the European contingent is going to be strong in this race, I think. 
whether this victory from Mishrif last year set the tone for future years and that received wisdom that you know, this is a race that would be better suited to European horses because the dirt there is a bit turfy, you know, in, in the way that it plays and it's a big sweeping track and it's a one turn event that that'll suit European horses. I still think you've got to handle dirt. That might be a bit of an overplay, you know, based on based on the, the performance of Mishrif last year. Charlatan still ran a hell of a race and pushed him all the way to the wire. I think that's why it was so exciting. Uh, Mishrif, though, I, I think sets, sets the standard. He wasn't always at his best in Europe last year. I think giving him a break was a good idea to prepare him for a, a defence of this crown. But if he's there and he's tuned and he's fresh, he, he's, the, he's the one to be, even for, even for Mandaloon. I think Mishrif Mandaloon's a good, good strong clash. Other Europeans that are interesting. Sealyway was a was a good winner of the of the Champion Stakes at Ascot. He, he he's got some pretty solid form. Second to St Mark's Basilica in the Jockey Club, winner of the Champion Stakes, ran a good race in the Arc off a layoff. Another new trainer. Interesting. Distance will be just about bob on for him as well if he if he adapts to the surface. Pile Driver's the other one. Coronation Cup winner. Not sure he'd quite be quick enough for this. But it's an interesting spot for him, and he's, he's certainly a, you know, a, a significant horse to land a blow for a smaller, slightly less heralded training operation as well. And I say Mandaloon's going to be the flag bearer. We'll find out. Perhaps something crazy happens on Saturday, and one or both of the top two end up pointing there. It doesn't sound like that's going to be the case. But it, stranger, it, are you not are you not a bit disappointed by that? I mean, the timing is 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 fine. I think I don't think you're wheeling back ridiculously quickly. And a horse like Life is good if. If he went and demolished Nick's go on, on Saturday, surely the temptation to run for the lion's share of $20 million has got to be strong, hasn't it? However however much you've got in the coppers already. It feels like, and knowing Todd Pletcher's MO, four weeks rather quick. It's part of the reason he doesn't typically run horses back in the Preakness following the Derby. He waits for the Belmont. Um, and if they've... I know Dubai has come up. And I personally think the horse would run 10 miles if you allowed him to. I'm just that high on him. We could be totally wrong, or I could be proven totally wrong on Saturday. Um, if that's the case, and Dubai is actually the next target, I don't see it very likely. Um, I think there is still something to be said about a one-turn mile and an eighth. That's a proper test of stamina. And I think it takes a special animal to be able to handle that. And as much as I like Mandaloon, I, frankly, I'm not totally convinced that that's going to be his bread and butter. I think he's going to be a one-turn type. But boy, uh, a one-turn mile and an eighth—that that—that's not a—that's not a walk in the park. I think he could be a really nice Met Mile type, one-turn miler. And, and don't get me wrong, I don't think he's incapable of running well at a mile and an eighth. We've seen him do that well in the past, and he only lost the Derby by about a length at a mile and a quarter. But I think at his best, he's probably a mile and a sixteenth, two-turn type, or a one-turn miler. And I think he's going to really have to have one yeah. of his, if not his best, race of his career. If he's going oh, to win with, the Saudi Cup, especially against a horse like Mishra. Without a doubt. The, the two things you know about Mishra is that on his day, he is very, very good and sets a very high standard. But on almost every day, he's very tough. He doesn't lie down. He's got outstanding form on the track from last year. He gets a mile and a half just on the turf, but has got tactical speed to lie up. So, And he loves that long straight as well. That's the other thing. That would be absolutely ideal for him. I think it's part of the reason that us here in the States from a Breeders' Cup standpoint would love to see him in a race like the Classic as opposed to the Turf. And again, we're way, way down the road. 
from heading to Keeneland, but I would be fascinated to see what a campaign for Mishriff looks like this year, assuming he doesn't go off to stud after this. And it's kind of late at that point. Um, I, I personally, I know you and I talked about it last year. I would love to see him in a race like the classic. And I know part of the reason Delmar didn't come up was because of the short stretch and mm. all these different things. Keeneland, perhaps a little bit different. I mean, I, crazy to think that the classic could be in play for him this year, assuming all goes well. Uh, no, I think I think I think Gosden fancies it at Keeneland. I think he fancies having a crack at the classic with him. Uh, I do. I think he I think he took it on board last year. Uh, and yeah, annoying people like me were saying, "Come on, run in the classic. You've got to run in the classic." Um, but he's he's long enough in the tooth and and trained enough big race winners to sort of ignore the surround sound and realize when when he's got to target horses for which races. So I, I really hope he did intimate to me last year that Keeneland would be would be very much uppermost in his mind. If you think about it, it fits. You know, he's tried him in the champion stakes. It didn't work. I think the owner sort of fancies a bash at the arc, but does he really stay a strongly run mile and a half? I don't think so. Not, well, not when they go proper hard and the likelihood of bad ground as well. So I, your opportunities start becoming a little bit thin in, in Europe. I, if, if Mishrip was mine, it would be a very straightforward campaign for me. I'd run him in the Saudi Cup. Maybe they'll want to take him to Dubai again for the Shima Classic. If they do, you couldn't blame them. It's a lot of money. Then come back, freshen him up, maybe take him to Royal Ascot if you can get him there in time for the Prince of Wales's over 10. Then run him in the Judmont International, the race he won last year. Um, and that, well, you've got either the option of the Ascot or the Eclipse, then the International, then, then lay him away and give him one, one little you know, breeze or blow out or try and find a small little race for him and, and prep him for the Breeders' Cup Classic. The horse of this caliber, that, I think that's what makes Americans so anxious and excited about the prospect of him coming and running in that race because he's not just an also-ran. He would immediately be one of the more likely winners of the race, regardless of who ends up coming through this season, whether it is life is good or any three-year-old that develops into something down the road. Um, it's a fascinating topic of conversation hopefully we get to that point and we're even having this conversation at the beginning of november nick luck i thank you again for your time i look forward to seeing you in a few days safe travels and we'll see you in florida all right maddie see you wednesday all right let's talk nfl and that'll be the wrap for episode 100 first things first we'll go back to last week go through not just the game projections but the player projections some of them were really strong some of them basically from one game in particular not very good but it is what it is. That game ended up being arguably the best game many of us have seen in a long, long time. Uh, let's start with the Bengals and the Titans. I had the Bengals winning, excuse me, I had the Titans winning 26 to 24, but I did have one model suggesting that the Bengals would win 26 to 24. Cincinnati ended up winning 19 to 16. From a projection standpoint, uh, had Burrow at 25 for 36, 331, two touchdowns and a pick. He ended up going 28 for 37, 348, zero touchdowns in one pick. So pretty solid there. Tannehill projected 22 for 33, 241, one touch, one interception. He went 15 for 24, 221 touchdown and three picks. So the yardage for both players was pretty, pretty tight. Um, off on the picks for Tannehill, off on the touchdowns for Burrow. All things considered, not too disappointed with those projections. I had Chase statted out for 6-111 and a touchdown. He went 5 for 109 and no touchdowns, so almost spot on. Higgins had projected 6 for 101 and a touchdown. He went 7 for 96 
zero touchdowns. So again, very, very close. I can't complain about those numbers. And A.J. Brown, I had statted out at five for 70 in a touchdown. He went five for 142 in a touchdown. So the yardage was off there, but he did get that touchdown, had the correct amount of receptions. All things considered, pleased with that game. San Francisco and Green Bay, I had Green Bay winning 29 to 22. They lost the 49ers. They just seem to have that. They got the magic dust this year. I don't know what it is, but they're maybe they're the team this year. Who knows? Uh, they won 13 to 10 up in Green Bay off of the, the wild ending with the block punt and X, Y, and Z. Projection standpoint, at Garoppolo at 19 for 30, 243, two touchdowns and a pick. He went 11 for 19, 131 in a pick, so not great there. Rodgers had him statted out at 25 for 35, 270, and three touchdowns. He went 20 for 29, 225, no touchdowns, no picks. So again, slightly off in that category. Uh, had Elijah Mitchell statted out for 15 carries, 73 yards. He went 17 carries for 53 yards. A.J. Dillon, 39 yards. He ended up with 25. Aaron Jones, 45 yards. He ended up at 41. Uh, from a receiving standpoint, George Kittle had him 5 for 57. He went 4 for 63. And Devontae Adams, 8 for 101 in the touchdown. He ended up going 9 for 90 and zero touchdowns. The game of the, I don't know, game of the year. I'd be stunned if anything else lived up to it. I mentioned that it might be the game of the entire postseason last week. Ended up playing out that way in just a thriller between the Bills and the Chiefs. I had it 27 to 27. I'm going to take that as a win that they went to overtime because the, the final two minutes of that game were unbelievable. Um, the projections, though, if I'm being honest, they weren't particularly good. Um, the only ones that I'll rehash were the quarterbacks. Allen, 25 for 38, 266, a touchdown and a pick. He went 27 for 37. So almost spot on as far as the completion to attempt ratio. Uh, the yardage was off. 329, four touchdowns, no picks. Mahomes, I had him at 25 for 37, a touchdown and a pick. He went 33 for 44, three touchdowns and a pick. Yeah, I mean, everybody has said it already. Those two basically threw perfect games against one another. Somebody had to win, and it's unfortunate that Allen and the Bills never had an opportunity to answer. I had all of the other stats projected incorrectly. Running backs were off. Receiving was off. Just one of those where, you know what, it is what it is. I was wrong there. Um, a game that I I feel very good about. The While I had the game final result incorrect, the stat lines I thought were spot on. If you used any of those for DFS, good on you. The Rams and the Bucks. I had the Bucks winning 29 to 25. They lost 30 to 27 from a stat standpoint. I had Stafford projected out at 28 for 42, 306, two touchdowns and a pick. He went 28 for 38, 366, two touchdowns. No interceptions, so almost spot on. Feel really good about that one. Uh, Brady had him statted at 33 for 47, 367, two touchdowns and a pick. He went 30 for 54, 329, a touchdown and a pick. So very close, very happy with those sort of numbers. Uh, Cooper Cup, I had him statted at nine for 146 and a touchdown. He went nine for 183 and a touchdown. So just off on the yardage, but all around, can't complain there. Uh, Mike Evans had him statted at five for 101 and a touchdown. 8 for 119 and a touchdown. Very close there. Gronk, 5 for 105. He went 4 for 85. And the one that I'm probably most pleased about is Leonard Fournette from a receiving standpoint. Had him statted at 6 for 51. 9 for 56 was his final number there. So that's a rehash of last week. Let's talk about the conference championships coming up this Sunday. Uh, you've got, I mean, I don't know if you want to call them classic matchups, but I'm really intrigued by both of them. Despite the fact that it feels like, right now anyway, Shanahan has McVay's number, 
and you're talking about the known commodity in the Chiefs versus the team that's probably overachieving a little bit. But boy, I feel like they are picking up the public sentiment. And I know I'm on the bandwagon for Cincinnati. I think they're going to be a couple of good games. Let's start off with the Bengals and the Chiefs. The line is Kansas City minus seven at home. The total is 54 and a half. I have the Chiefs winning 29 to 24. It is worth noting I have a one part of my sim that suggests the game is going to be even closer than that, 24 to 23 Kansas City. Uh, but I, I think either way, I think the Bengals can cover this number from a stat standpoint. I have Burrow statted out at 23 for 33, 306, two touchdowns and one interception. I have Pat Mahomes, 26 for 38, 302, two touchdowns, one interception, almost identical numbers for the two quarterbacks. Out of the backfield, I've got Mixon, 16 carries, 74 yards. I have a combination of Williams and Clyde Edwards-Alaire looking roughly at uh, Williams at 30 yards, although he's not getting any real touches. So that's probably an incorrect number. Edwards-Alaire, I feel pretty good about. 11 carries, 46 yards uh, receiving-wise. Jamar Chase and T. Higgins, both with eight targets, both with five catches. The difference is yardage and touchdowns. Uh, I have, well, I shouldn't say that. I have Chase at 94 yards and a touchdown. I have Higgins at 86 yards and a touchdown. So very sort of parallel paths for those two. To be honest, it could very easily end up being a situation similar to what we saw in that Bills game with Kansas City, where I had Steph Diggs statted out as really the one who was going to eat. Ended up being Gabe Davis. Maybe this is an instance where everybody and their brother keys in on Chase and Higgins is the one that picks up the, the marker or somebody else. Boyd's out there as well. But I have Chase at eight targets, five catches, 94 yards and a touchdown. Higgins, eight targets, five catches, 86 yards and a touchdown. From a Kansas City standpoint, Tyreek Hill, nine targets, seven catches, 93 yards and one touchdown. Travis Kelsey, eight targets, six catches, 90 yards and one touchdown. I think it's going to be a good game. I'm in on the Bengals. I like Kansas City. Excuse me. I like Cincinnati. I acknowledge that Kansas City is probably going to win, but I am uh, I'm pulling for Can uh, Cincinnati in the spot. I, I like the Bengals. I like everything that they're doing. I think that they are probably a little bit early, a little bit ahead of schedule. Nobody in Cincinnati is going to complain about this. I love everything about Burrow. I've talked about it before. I'll talk about it again. If I were going to make a bet, though, that's probably the bet of the weekend for me in that case, just simply because I, I think. And I, a couple of things I have seen that that number could easily come down from seven may end up in six and a half range shortly, but I think Cincinnati can cover that. A touchdown seems like a pretty aggressive number there, uh, but I do have the big model, Kansas City winning 29 to 24 and going back to the Super Bowl. Uh, San Francisco and LA. The line is three and a half in favor of the Rams. Total is 46 and a half. I have the Rams winning 27 to 22. I have another sim that has the Rams winning 24 to 17. And I know this goes right in the face of everything that people have been chatting about. And I mentioned it, the fact that right now, it just seems like Shanahan has McVay's number and San Francisco just might be the team of destiny for this year. At a certain point, I think Garoppolo is going to become the problem. You know, for him to get through two postseason victories, and I he's barely eclipsed 300 yards total. I suppose you want to say he can be the, the game manager that they need. Well, he, he still had a couple of really, really key critical errors so far in the postseason. It just hasn't bit them in the rear end just yet. Uh, 
Maybe it won't happen on Sunday, but I don't know that I would have a great deal of confidence backing San Francisco if I were going to put any money in there. As far as stats are concerned, I have Garoppolo statted out at 22 for 31, 284, a touchdown and a pick. I have Stafford at uh, 26 for 37, 291, two touchdowns, one interception. Uh, The only key running back stat would be Elijah Mitchell. I have him at 18 for 75. And from a receiving standpoint, I have Debo Samuel, five targets, excuse me, eight targets, five catches, 97 yards. George Kittle, seven targets, six catches, 72 yards. Brandon Ayuk, five targets, four catches, 53 yards. The way that I have things statted out, I don't have any one of them, the overwhelming favorite to be the recipient of the passing touchdown. So I'm not going to make a call there. Um, I'm more... I feel good about the yardage numbers and, and the receptions. The touchdown, I, I think, it, throw it up. Could be any one of them. From a Ram standpoint, the two numbers that stood out to me, uh, Van Jefferson, five targets, three catches, 51 yards. But Cooper Cup is, has been the case all season. 11 targets, nine catches, 124 yards, and a touchdown. Uh, where that other touchdown for the Rams comes from, whether it's Higby, whether it's somebody else, who knows. We'll find out. But the one that I have pretty clearly statted out is Cooper Cup, nine catches, 124 yards, and a touchdown. So based on my projections, you're going to have a Chiefs-Rams Super Bowl. I personally will be rooting for the Bengals, uh, but I think you've got storylines in all four teams, whoever should end up getting to the Super Bowl in a couple weeks' time. But there you have it. Those are the projections for Conference Championship Sunday in the NFL. If you have any thoughts, questions, whatever it may be, beneath the video player on YouTube, um, and obviously, you can follow along on Twitter at Bernie or underscore map. But as I said at the top, I've muted a lot of notifications. So um, if I don't respond, it's not because I'm ignoring. It's just because I probably didn't see it because of the filters that are on. So, uh, but there you have it. Or you can email me, uh, Bernie or dot Matt 89 at gmail.com. So that's going to do it. Uh, thank you all for the continued support. For those of you that listen, those of you that watch, however you, you check this thing out, it means a great deal. Uh, 100 episodes here within the money media. Uh, feel good about that and uh, looking forward to continuing on for the rest of 2022. Questions, comments, concerns, as always, beneath the video player on YouTube, send me an email. Um, and then again, with the Twitter thing, hopefully I see it. If not, you know, it's not because I'm ignoring you. It's just that it didn't get through all the filters. But um, looking forward to getting down to Gulfstream, head down on Thursday. Looking forward to the broadcast on Saturday, NBC from 4.30 to 6, Pegasus World Cup with the showdown between Knicks Go and life is good. Until next month, I'm back in cold snow. Best of luck however you play, whatever you play, wherever. This has been episode 100 of the Matt Burning Show.